welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a rising fourth-year graduate student in the Department of Biology at Baylor University. Please welcome Kaylee Reisenauer. Hey! Hey! Welcome on the show! Thank you. Um, I'm so excited. Yeah! I know. You're in Texas. I'm a Texan. Once again, all of the Texas love. Uh, <laughs> So what's your random cool fact for us today? Okay, so I study breast cancer, uh, and I've kind of got like a two-parter uh, for, for everybody out there. Uh, so fun fact, maybe less, okay, it's not really that fun, actually. It's kind of a sad fact. Uh, <laughs> men, men can get breast cancer too, which I think a lot of people don't know, um, and they don't actually need substantial amounts of breast tissue for that to happen. Um, and then kind of more positive for the ladies out there, um, if you are breastfeeding, your chance of getting breast cancer reduces by about 4%. Wow. That's like yeah. pretty notable. It, yeah. I mean, they aren't quite sure why. They think it either has something to do with like your reduced cycles and like it reduces your estrogen or potentially like the restructuring of the breast tissue. Um, but I actually was just having a conversation today with a mom of twins to 10 month olds. Um, and she was like super excited to learn that the fact that she was like breastfeeding, you know, two babies. She's like, oh, yes, I'm like totally fine then. I'm like, probably. <laughs> that's definitely how stats work. Yeah. She's like, that's 8%, right? That's how that works. It's times two. Yes. It's like, no, not, not really. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I do T tests. And so I'm like, yeah, sure. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm just doing basic stats. So, mm-hmm. yep. um, so what are you drinking today? So as a shout out to all my my hometown folk uh, in the great state of Wisconsin, I have my nuclearist spotted cow that I have smuggled into the state of Texas. Oh my gosh. I'm, I still have only had nuclearist like once and I was like, oh, this is good. This is a problem that I have not been able to go to the brewery. Yeah. Like it's, it was super close to my undergrad institution when I was at Madison. And so it was very, very tempting, like all the time. Just to take like the 15 minute drive over and just go hang out. You're like, we could go study at the brewery. It's like, nah, that's not studying. <laughs> we'll bring all of our stuff, but we all know it's going to happen. Right. We have backpacks and then giant growlers. It's fine. <laughs> Sounds about uh, right. It's Wisconsin. Yeah, you know. Uh, I'm also drinking some Midwestern. I'm having Crystal Lake Brewing's uh, Bleach, <laughs> Bleach, Beach Blonde. So it's just a golden mm. lager. That's. From yeah. the Midwest somewhere. I actually don't know exactly where it is. But yeah, here, let me crack this sucker up one. Nice. Uh-huh. All right. Well, cheers. Cheers. Oh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. so hot in the summer and that's so refreshing. Oh, yeah. You're, I mean, you're telling me it's Texas and it's super humid right now, too. And it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I remember how that is. Uh, so, so yeah, I want to talk about your research. So you study breast cancer, but you're studying it like not on a clinical level so much as like at a biological level. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So we actually like define our lab as a cancer biology lab um, and our interests specifically fall under understanding why certain cells choose to metastasize and then what pathways in those cells are driving them to metastasize or become more resistant to treatment. And metastasize is just like when the cells spread and go elsewhere, right? Yeah. And that's usually what causes, it's actually really unfortunate because that's actually the biggest cause of cancer-related death. 
uh, is having a disease that has spread throughout your body because it makes it so much more hard to get like all of the cells and treat you and have something that works consistently throughout your body. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, when you can like just cut out a chunk of tissue that's not functioning anymore, that's a lot easier than like, oh, now it's like in several different kinds of organs that all need probably different treatments. Like that gets complicated really fast. Yeah. And so understanding what kind of causes those cells to want to spread and leave the primary site, um, which is where the tumor, the first tumor kind of arose, um, is really helpful because then it can help inform people who do more therapeutic things and that can tell them which pathways or which molecules they need to target. So, so like in a day to day, are you just doing cell cultures or like, what is it, what does it look like in your lab? Like, is it a wet lab? Are you doing modeling? Yeah, it definitely is a lot of wet lab um, stuff where we have a lot of cell culture and we actually do work with mice um, because when you want to study something like metastasis, we do have uh, systems that we can use just cells to look at how like they move throughout a space. Um, for example, we'll do something called a scratch assay, which is pretty much what it sounds like. So we plate a bunch of cells on a surface and then we create a scratch down the center. And if the cells are likely to metastasize or migrate, they will actually move into that open space. Um, and then hopefully you know, if we have a treatment, those cells won't move as much because we're decreasing their ability to do so. And that's all fine and well, but it makes it really hard to make it applicable to people because mm -hmm. we're not like creating spaces in people. Uh, that's not like how cancer works. And so <laughs> we have to use a mouse model in order to understand if certain cells are metastasizing to you know certain organs. And if, if it's more applicable in that way, then we can take it further Right. Like move it up the chain of like, okay, let's test it on these different, like more and more close to what we experience models kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah. So then when you're, so because you're like you in particular study breast cancer, are there specific kinds of cells that you're working with? Like do, do mice have breast tissue? They must because they're mammals, <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, so we don't call it breast tissue because they don't actually have tissue constructed in the way that humans have like breasts or even apes where they have the ducts that hang kind of off of the body and, you know, swell and engorge with milk um, in the same way. They have what we call mammary fat pads. Yeah. And if you think of like, you know, if you take a mouse and you flip it over and you're looking at its like belly, they actually, so they have five nipples because mice have a lot of babies and they usually need to, you know, feed multiple babies. Right. Kind of like, you know, like dogs have multiple nipples on their, on their abdomen. Um, and so specifically the the fourth fat pad which is the area right behind that fourth nipple really really close to like the hind leg of the mouse that's the site that would be considered the most analogous to the breast tissue of humans gotcha so that's like that's the specific like chunk of tissue that you're interested in like using as the model yeah so whenever we have cells um that we either inject into mice or if we actually have this is super cool i think this is probably like the neatest thing i learned once i started doing uh, this kind of research is we have something called patient derived xenograph and xenograph just basically means it's tissue from one species that we're putting into another species and so we actually have patient tumors that a lab over at baylor college of medicine in houston has grown up for multiple generations and they found that the mouse won't reject it 
we have to we knock out the immune system for those mice, but we can take those patient samples, those little pieces of that patient tumor and grow them in mice. And that's really, really helpful because those are the most true to form. Like they've never been grown on plastic. They've never been outside of like a living, breathing organism. And so when we do studies on those cells, we can make the most direct comparisons between how we think that they're going to respond in what we're seeing in our data and what we see, what would hypothetically see in people. Whoa, that's like, yeah, that's really clever. I'm always interested in how these like animal models, like how we put them together. Mm-hmm. Um, so so it's really interesting that you're you're doing this like xenomorphs make me think of like a comic book series. <laughs> but yeah. I think it's like actual science, which is exciting. Um, but I wanted to know, so when you're doing these kinds of studies, how long does it take for you to tell if like a treatment is working or something like that? Like how do you how do you know? Like how long are you watching the mice? How long do these experiments last? Yeah, so I think the important thing to understand is before we even get anywhere near a mouse, we have done so much testing in cell lines to understand like a baseline and what we expect to happen. And we're not going to just like put some drug in a mouse and just like hope for the best. We're going to have done extensive studies in cell lines. And then once we understand, okay, here's the actual specific questions that we cannot answer in cell lines and we need mice for, then we do a bunch of math uh, to figure out exactly how many mice we need in order to get significant statistics so that the, it would actually matter the data that we would get. Um, but once we kind of get to that point, and that can take anywhere from three months to over a year, depending on how uh, your, your experiments are going. Um, for me, I work with a natural product, and so it's not actually a drug. Uh, it's not you know been FDA approved or anything. And so I've been working for almost a year just trying to understand what is this, we call it a compound, is kind of the general name for like a not drug, Mm -hmm. Um, whatever this compound is doing in the cell. And then we can be like, okay, well, this is how much of it we need to kill cancer cells on plastic. And we know this is how much of it we can get away with adding to mice that are happy and healthy. Okay, we have all this information. Now we can go ahead and like, test it in a mouse, but adding cells to mice or even doing um, patient-drive xenografts using the patient samples can take anywhere from four weeks to five months uh, to get an actual tumor to grow. And then we still have to wait because then we usually have to administer treatments, which takes like three weeks um, or or more. And then we have to you know harvest all the the tissue that we need and do data analysis on that. So mouse studies alone, you know, from the time of injection until the time that we actually have like presentable data usually takes about a year. God, that's so long. (laughs) It really is. Like I'm working on data that will go in my like third and final paper now. Yeah. Like it's like I've been doing one study, but I'm gonna get a lot of papers out of it because the shit will never end. <laughs> it's literally, yeah, it's gonna take such a long time. And I'll like have some like little papers that I'll do just in cell lines to kind of like claim it as they like, this is my science and I'm gonna be the person who does this. Um, but then I'll have like the big follow-up study that will have actually been running for roughly two years. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So then do you have an army of undergrads who are like checking on the mice and feeding them on the weekends and stuff? 
Oh, well, we do have an army of undergrads. Uh, being at a teaching university like Baylor is, uh, there's obviously a ton of undergrads running around. Uh, and I, I like to say that cancer is sexy, especially to these kids who are all pre-med. <laughs> Um, you know, it's, just, it's a really interesting thing to study because I think it's going to be super helpful for their career. So we always have a ton of undergrads in the lab, but they're actually not allowed up in the vivarium, which is where we keep the mice. Um, but we do have a wonderful team of staff members and a veterinarian. That's like, that's their only job is to like take care of the mice. That makes sense. And they're probably taking care of like a lot of mice for multiple experiments because like that's that's just what they do is they're keeping an eye on everybody's animal models. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And they look through everybody from the biology groups to the psychology groups to, you know, even just like the stock mice that are just chilling and breeding. Um, they make sure that they're all happy, healthy, fed, clean, etc. And then they let the researchers know, they're like, hey, we don't think this one's doing so great. What do you want us to do? Um, are you nearing the end of an experiment? Is this an expected result? Or is this okay? Uh, and then we work really closely with those staff people and the vet to decide the right course of action. Wow. Yeah, that sounds like quite the team effort, like among the like the experts and the researchers and like everybody trying to to like make that work out. So then do you have like a really big lab? Yeah, we well, we have three and a half grad students. <laughs> uh, so three of us are like full time in the lab and then one has a co-mentor. Um, so he's like with us part time. And then we have about eight undergrads so yeah about two per year so it's like it's a pretty sizable lab I wouldn't say we're like the biggest because we only have three grad students and there's other labs like on campus that have you know nine yeah yeah and, but we definitely don't have any problem getting undergraduate help yeah <laughs> yeah when you, when you study something that's like sexy and interesting like that's definitely the people who get the most undergrad emails saying like hey I want to get involved in research <laughs> Yep. And like, I don't envy uh, my advisor because he's the one who is kind of taking the brunt of that and fields all of those emails and skims through them and then kind of comes to us. He's like, I think I've got one that's good. Do you want it? Yeah. Do you want to work with them? Then we make the decision. I hate it when there's like a wonderful undergrad who's like super driven and interested and like wants to do all the work. And then it turns out that because they're so smart and driven, they have like a million other side projects. And they're like, I can spend five hours in the lab. And you're like, Oh man, that's not enough. <laughs> like, I know I'm like, how but like how many days a week can you do those five hours? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you'd be great if you had maybe three times the amount of time that you do. <laughs> like, yep. Yeah, that's definitely conversations because for a long time I was teaching freshmen and you know, I love research. It's always been part of my life. I started researching by the first month of school, my freshman year. Oh, wow. And so I'm always trying to like push them and like, hey, this is really good. Even if you don't know what you want to do, like it's super helpful just to get in a lab because then it can either solidify your love of medicine and wanting to go into med school, or it can open your eyes to something you've never even considered. Yeah. Um, but really being kind of direct with them, it's like, they're like, well, how long do I have to be in there? I'm like, well, first of all, you don't have to, you get to. <laughs> <laughs> but also I'm like, yeah, you should at least at least have 10 hours a week to, you know, as, as a freshman and then, you know, expect that to ramp up. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, like, and it always depends because, like, I worked in a lab as an undergrad also, like, my freshman year. And I think I did start, like, 10 hours a week. And then I didn't, like, I just didn't like the research that I was being assigned to do in that lab. And I switched mm -hmm. labs. And I started putting in a lot more hours. But it was, like, 
hours that I really enjoyed. And also I was being paid. So like I was not going to complain. Like I was doing cool, like looking at brainwaves and EEG stuff. And then also being paid for my time. So like over the summer, I was like, hell yeah, I'll work like 20, 30 hours a week. I'm getting paid for this. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, for Baylor, it's really nice. Kind of like um, a prior episode where the Texas A&M students are getting paid in research credit. That's definitely an option for our students. And then Baylor being a private institution has a lot more flexibility with their money in some cases. And so they are able to offer summer research like scholarships that oh. allow students to stay and get paid. And it doesn't, that doesn't come out of the lab money. That's from the university. Yeah. So then like, it doesn't matter that you're working with like an underfunded lab because you can still like spend the time in there and not be costing them. Yeah. Um, so what got you interested in cancer research to begin with? Like, what made you join this lab? Yeah, it's kind of an interesting story because every time I tell somebody I study cancer, first they either tell me, you know, I know so-and-so who has cancer, or I know my uncle who has this kind of lung cancer, and what treatment should I give them? And then I have to explain that that's not the kind of science I do. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the other arm is, oh, well, who do you know in your life who has had breast cancer? And I am so unfortunate, knock on um, wood, but uh, I haven't had anybody in my life uh, who has experienced cancer um, either, you know, in any, in any capacity. Uh, my interests in undergrad were in genetics and biomolecular chemistry. And so my research for majority of my undergraduate career focused on protein modification. So what happens to proteins once they're made um, and why do certain changes happen? And that, to me, kind of grew into this love of cellular behavior and cellular regu regulation. So, like, why do cells do what they do? What happens if a cell goes rogue? And the best model to study cells going rogue happens to be cancer because they're really good at going off book. And so I started looking around for grad schools, um, you know, my senior year. And I happened to stumble upon my PI, uh, my advisor, because uh, he was brand new also. So he wasn't even on the website. It was so serendipitous wow. that I got connected with a different faculty member. And we were chatting. And he's like, you know, I really think you're going to like this new guy we got. You guys seem like you're going to really hit it off. And so a Skype call and a you know, flight down to Waco later, and I was hooked. I, you know, I gave up some other positions that I thought would be more prestigious because I knew I was going to get amazing mentorship and guidance um, and also get to study exactly what I wanted to be studying uh, in, a, in a system I didn't anticipate falling into, but it's so interesting. Yeah. And it's like, it's really important to not be about, you know, the name brand of the university. Like if you don't have a good PI, it doesn't matter if you're at Harvard or whatever, like having that mentorship matters so much. It really does. Um, I just actually came back from doing a talk with a bunch of uh, collaborators slash colleagues um, down in Houston, and the number of times that his they were, they were his former uh, colleagues, they'd come up to me and be like, you know, you're so lucky. He like he did a really good job mentoring you, and you guys seem like you're doing such a good job, and you have so much good data after only three years. And I'm like, that's so true. <laughs> you know, sometimes you're in your third year and you're sitting there like, oh crap. Yeah, I don't have a project and that happens to people and that's so scary. And I've had, you know, five projects run through my, you know, my desk until this point where I'm like settling and he's allowing me to pursue things I'm passionate about in addition to my passion for research. And like, you just can't get that kind of lucky. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just like knowing people who will set you up with the right advisor and then, yeah. Like a lot of it is also like personalities clicking. But it Mm -hmm. sounds like, so do you do a bunch of like science communication stuff as well as your research or like teaching stuff that he's cool with or? Yeah. So Baylor has a requirement for teaching, uh, which is actually how like we get our stipend. But I've been on a grant for the last two semesters, which is super nice because it frees up a lot of my time to do research uh, because it takes away that teaching requirement. Mm -hmm. Um, But my first year of grad school, I got really, really interested in an organization from UT Austin called Present Your PhD. I actually saw one of their members speaking at a rally for science in Austin. And so I reached out to them, I learned more about it, and then I reached out to other grad students. And then four of us in 2017 started like our own Present Your PhD. And it has just grown so much. Uh, We went from 40 members to over 30. And in just under two years, we've reached over 3,000 people. Dang. And so, yeah, I am like, this is my baby. Like, this is really what I want to, I want to continue this growth and I want to push it into other universities. And he is so patient because I think he acknowledges that this is, this is something I want to, you know, do something with. And I love research and it'll always be part of my life. But this is where I could see myself spending, you know, the rest of my working career, you know, working on something like this. Whereas as much as research is interesting, I just don't see you know, a 50-year commitment to that. Yeah. And it, like, matters that if if we care about research in general, like, you need to explain to people, like, <laughs> starting with your parents sometimes, like, why you're still in school, why it matters. Like, the fact that you're not – like, you are a student, but you're also, like, doing groundbreaking research. Like, that's the whole thing of being a graduate student is, like, come up with some cool experiments, prove some cool stuff, be the first one to discover something. That's, like, you know, the, the aspirational version of graduate school. <laughs> Absolutely. And like, you know, maybe I'm romanticizing scientific graduate research a little bit, but really like we are on the front edge of like human knowledge in that we're asking questions that don't have answers. And then when we answer it, that is something the world did not know until we answered that question. And like, to me, that's just the most interesting thing. Yeah, absolutely. Like presenting your research as a as a poster or as like a, a talk or something it's like yeah I found this thing like me and my team people I worked with my collaborators we found something new and it's going to tell something new like in my case about the brain and about sleep or you know about cancer or about this particular like how this drug works on this particular pathway or whatever mm-hmm. yeah um, and I think kind of because this is something that's come up in my personal conversations a lot and I think I would be remiss not to mention um, for I get some heat for doing a PhD and then, quote, not doing anything with it, uh, because a lot of times people assume, OK, you're going to go do a PhD and then you're going to be like an academic forever. And I don't I just want to kind of dispel any myths or perceptions around that, because I don't think that's true that you have to be an academic. I mean, there's plenty of people who go into other fields. And the important thing about a PhD, right, is that it it teaches you how to think. And yeah. it teaches you how to like be critical and how to tackle problems. And yeah. I think that's super important, especially for a career in science communication, when you have to be really selective about the science that you continue to perpetuate and share. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely true. And also, like, there are just more graduate students and postdocs than there will ever be professorships, even if like everybody uh-huh. retired. Like, it's just, it's so 
unreasonable to think that people who are getting a PhDs are only like going to stay in academia. And I think mentalities about that are starting to shift, or at least I feel like I'm saying that. So I'm hopeful. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I definitely think in academia, especially among, you know, I want to say like younger professors, I think they kind of came into their careers knowing that a lot of their students won't be academics. They probably Mm -hmm. still want like their students to carry on their legacy or whatever, but I think they're a lot more open to it. And I think a lot of the the old dogs, so to speak, are coming around to it. Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Also, because like half the time it benefits them to have not all their students going to academia. Like I know professors who will have a student going to industry that then like it becomes a collaboration with someone in industry. Absolutely. So you get access to like technology you wouldn't otherwise or something like that. Like it's useful to have those connections. Yes, yeah, I've become more mindful of networking as, you know, as a young career scientist um, and how important that is. Like really having that diversity of network is so important, especially if you want to be in academia because your network of just academics isn't going to get you very far. Yeah, yeah, absolutely not. So it sounds like you're really interested in kind of like after graduate school, you know, going into a more science communication position, do you have an idea of what exactly you want that to look like? Or are you just kind of like, you know, seeing what's out there? Because there's a lot of positions that are like super diverse. Absolutely. It's almost inundating. Um, I'm part of some communication groups that have job boards and just seeing the plethora of posts make me so, so happy. And like, oh, good. I'm going to have a job when I graduate. <laughs> um, but I am, I'm pretty open. Um Obviously, like the star magical goal would be to continue present your PhD because outreach is definitely something that I have found hits the sweet spot of my love for sharing science, working with science, and then working with people. Yeah. But there's so many ways to do outreach that isn't just, you know, training graduate students to better communicate their science to make them better scientists and then creating that connection with your community. There's other ways to do that. Uh, And like the AAAS has some amazing fellowships. Or even, like, I haven't completely ruled out working as a postdoc in an academic setting where I continue to do research. Uh, Yeah. But I think for me, it wouldn't be continuing with my cancer work in a very, you know, similar vein to what I'm doing now. I think it would need to be something where I'm working in a setting that would cause me to need to practice those science communication skills. So, like, something like a transdisciplinary lab where you have, biologists and chemists and engineers all collaborating on a project and then delivering that science and that that data. Because even then you have to have good science communication skills to like make sure you're cutting jargon that someone who's not in your sub-discipline wouldn't understand. Like you still need to have – I'm amazed by how much people are like, oh, you do SciComm on the side. I'm like, honestly, like – Half the time it's really useful if I have to give like a talk to my lab because I have certain terms that just because I've like subspecialized in one thing, they don't know. And I have to make sure that I'm not just like throwing a bunch of bullshit jargon and then they don't understand what I'm talking about. And then I don't get good feedback on my science. Absolutely. I don't think you could have said that any better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just I think about it a lot, especially when I see like bad colloquium talks I'm like oh Uh, this would be so much better why did you do this absolutely I mean the whole thing is knowing your audience because you know it is your talk but really who's it for they're there to learn too and to take that away from your audience is just being selfish yeah and I feel like sometimes it comes from a, a place of like not quite insecurity, but like if you feel like if you talk at a high enough level, people might not call you out on certain things. I don't know. Like I get the feeling sometimes it's purposely to dissuade negative comments, which I don't think really works. 
No, I don't think so either. And I mean, I fell for that probably for about a year and a half, two years of my graduate school career where I'm like, oh, if I just say like the big fancy trigger words, it's going to be super great and no one will like doubt me. And then my qualifying exam comes around and I'm throwing out all these words and my committee aren't all breast cancer researchers. And they're like, well, what does that mean? And talk to me in detail. And they're asking these questions from an outside field perspective. Mm -hmm. I'm like, yeah, okay. I really do. Like, I can't hide behind these words. Yeah. Yeah. And when they're like, I've had people be like, okay, so you, you study sleep and memory consolidation. What does consolidation mean? And I'm like, uh, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> we should define that term. <laughs> like, Yeah. And I think that's how you become a better scientist is because it challenges just like the words you like, you kind of know what they mean, but you don't know how to define it and you don't really know where it came from. And so having this deep understanding of what you're doing and why you're doing it can only make you a stronger thinker. Yeah, no, absolutely. A hundred percent agree. Um, yeah, I think it's been really beneficial to, to <laughs> think outside of my sub area a lot. Um, well, I wanted to ask you, is there anything about your research that we didn't get a chance to chat about? Um, so, yeah, there's so there's one part that I think is really interesting for people who maybe aren't very familiar with cancer research to, I don't want to say like realize, um, but just maybe be aware of is that cancer is a very, very difficult disease. And oftentimes it's not just like one thing. Tumors are made up of billions of cells that are all very different. And a lot of them behave in different ways. So that's why treatment is really hard. And there will oftentimes never be just like one treatment that gets rid of the cancer because it's going to only target so many of those cells. And my research kind of seeks to answer the the problem of what about the other cells? And so acknowledging that cancer researchers are working really hard to understand why those cells are there and what we can do about them um, can, I think, increase a lot of understanding in patients because cancer research is hard and it takes a long time. And I think some people can get frustrated because it's scary. And that's a really real emotion. Uh, But just coming from that place of understanding what we're up against can kind of help. And do you think some of that's just like the way that we name cancers? Because like, we, we, you know, we talk about like breast cancer or lung cancer, but like within your lungs, you have many different kinds of cells. Within your breast tissue, there's like several different, like you've also got all the blood vessels that are going through there and like supplying nutrient. Like there's a lot. Sometimes I think that by the naming, like the nomenclature we use, we we give people an idea that like there's one solution for each quote unquote type of cancer. And that's not really how those treatments are ever going to work because there's so many different kinds of cells that can be in that tumor. Is that accurate? That is completely accurate. Um, When people ask me like what I study, I say breast cancer. And if they continue to like hang on and want to know more, I tell them, well, there's actually three major clinical types of breast cancer. And I study like the really aggressive type that people don't know about and we don't really know what to do with. And so even just the fact that like, if you walk in and you're getting diagnosed with breast cancer, you're going to get diagnosed with like one of three different kinds of breast cancer. And then it just continues to like split apart into smaller and smaller fractions after that. Yeah. So it just becomes like, it it is not that it's more complicated, but there's just like a lot more to the story, which is why I always think it's funny when people like share headlines. It's like, so-and-so cures cancer. It's like, man, it like, no, (laughs) not how that works generally. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's it's such a it's such an interesting field to be part of. Again, I never thought I would be here, um, but you know, hearing some of the research or research that you know teams are putting out is just absolutely inspiring to be 
you know, contributing to that field and to be producing um, something that I think will be of real importance and meaning. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. After even after you leave academia, if you leave, it's like, yeah, I still made it like I made a mark and someone else can like take what I've done and run with it. And like, who knows what we'll discover after that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I think that's a great place to leave it. So I'll just say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, your review helps me reach a larger audience and get even more interesting guests on the show. I also have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast. That'll help support the production costs. A uh, friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been wonderfully editing the show for free, but we'd really like to use your patronage to make this a more sustainable project. Um, and if you want to hear what I'm up to, I'm on Twitter at PHDrinking. I also have a personal account at Sadie Witt. Cannot guarantee it's always about science. Uh, and then, Kaylee, how would you like people to, like listeners, to find out more about you and your work? Sure. The easiest way to find me is probably on social media. Um, my Twitter is Science Kaylee and my Instagram is Scientific Kaylee. Um, and it's really important because my name is spelled super weird. So my name is K-E-I-G-H-L-E-Y. Uh, so you can find me there and then you can find other places to find me from those two spots. Yeah. And as always, I'll make sure to uh, include some links about your research in the podcast description, uh, as well as that Twitter handle in case people missed that. So, yeah, thanks again for joining me on the show. This has been super interesting. Yeah, absolutely. It was so fun to talk to you, and I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about both my science and the importance of talking about science. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, like, I'm rooting for you to, like, keep building out your SciComm project because presenting your PhD sounds really dope. I'm very excited about that. Absolutely. It's probably coming to a campus near you in the next few years. All right. Well, to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers.